well, I, uh, I just, it's so good to hear you singing behind me. I mean, some of you guys need to come and check out the front row because you get to have everyone behind you lifting up their voices. So good. One of the reasons it's so good is when I hear the family of God behind me, I get a picture of who God is. I see that He's the God that calls us to live together, to dwell together, to love one another, and to rejoice together. And so one of the other things that we want to do together as a church is we want to pray together. We want it to always be at the center of who we are, that we are a people not just coming here for ourselves, but we would ask the Lord to come and move in the lives of those we love, in our own hearts, in the lives of those in our community. And what makes this season a particularly great time to do this is we are in the Lenten season right now. And if you're familiar with this season, it's this kind of lead up to Easter. And what the Bible tells us again and again in the Gospels is that during this time, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He set himself towards what God wanted to do through him for others. And so what I want us to do as a church in this season is to think who are those around us that God has called us to love, called us to serve, called us to share the good news of his son with. And I just want to pray for them together as a church. So in a few moments, I'm going to give you a chance to just sit and be, and be silent, be quiet for just a few moments and see who it is that the Lord brings to mind, puts on your heart to pray for in this season. I want you to challenge yourself to commit to praying for them throughout this season. That this wouldn't just be something we did one Sunday, but that God would Put this person deep into your heart so that as you think of Christ this Easter, you think of his love for them. And I want to encourage you, we're going to have a whole host of ways here at church that we are going to try and engage with God's desire and heart over the Easter season. The first one is a Passover experience we're going to have here at church on April 6th. Uh, This is a really unique opportunity for us to kind of go through the actual Last Supper itself, to recreate what Jesus did at that meal and understand it better for ourselves, understand what Jesus was doing there. Uh, And just to let you know, this does require registration because there's limited spots, and those are filling up quite quickly. I don't want uh, anyone to miss out on this chance to go through this. So don't let someone else steal your seat. Make sure that you get it. And then we're going to celebrate on Good Friday as an entire church together over at our Kesslinger campus with a concert from Andrew Peterson, who's a fantastic artist. He's going to be bringing in uh, his new album called The Resurrection Letters, where we kind of sing about what the heart of Easter is. And so a great opportunity for you to invite someone, encourage someone, uh, bring them along to hear the message. But beside all that, beside what we've got going on here at church, I hope that what you hear the heart is that Easter this season is for us to look outward as Christ did, to set our faces towards Jerusalem and understand that what we're heading towards is for everyone. God wants what we're about to celebrate, what we're about to enjoy, to be something that is available to everyone. So again, we're going to come and we're going to pray for this. What I want you to do is I just want you to close your eyes where you are right now. And I just want you to be still and to be silent and to listen. And let God speak to you. And as you do, as God raises someone in your heart that he wants to know, that he wants to be near to, I pray that you'd lift them up to him. Father, I pray for all of us that we would lift up to you those whom you are seeking. Those around us who you love dearly. Who you want to know the joy and the peace of your son. So God, keep them on our hearts. Keep them on our minds. God, I pray that as we travel through this season, we would not forget those towards whom you have set your face pray that we would set our faces towards them too, Lord. Make us a praying church, 
Make us a church that looks towards those that you look towards to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've, uh, I've been looking forward to this week's uh, message in this chapter. Uh, I think that Genesis 3 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Uh, and I, I've, as I've thought and prayed about this week, I, just, I feel like it's worth saying, it's been hard to write this one because there is so much in this to look at and to think about and reflect on uh, that it's almost overwhelming. So we're going to be doing two hours today. I hope you're prepared enough, I promise. <laughs> I promise I will try to go three hours. Um, but uh, you might find that that's a strange thing to say, because if you are familiar with what happens in Genesis 3 at all, if you've ever had any part of the story, you would think, why would this, of all parts of the Bible, be one of your favorite chapters? Because it's not a very happy chapter. It's not a moment in Scripture where a lot of obviously good things happen. And in fact, I would say that for most people in the world who are familiar with the story of Genesis 3, of Adam and Eve uh, taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and everything that happens, I would say that they say this is one of the worst moments, that this is one of the hardest stories because some of the concepts that come out of this are so difficult, ideas of sin and brokenness and fallenness, things that we don't really want to talk about. And so some people in our world would actually say are very harmful. The Genesis 3, the story of Genesis 3, this is the part of the Bible where people, when they read it, all they're going to feel is guilt and shame and so what good news could we possibly find in Genesis 3? I think a lot. And I hope that we'll start to see some of that today. I want you to think about it this way. One of uh, my least favorite moments with my kids is when they have uh, injured themselves. I love them to death, but when they injure themselves, they become the most difficult people on the face of the earth. I'll give you an example. When we were uh, helping one of our kids learn to ride a bike, it was common that he would fall off. Uh, and what would also be common is you fall on asphalt, you're going to graze your knee. And his instant reaction every time was like, ah, don't look at it. Don't get near it. I don't want anyone to touch it. I don't want to see it. I can't see it. And we were like, please, just let us, let us take a look. Let's make sure you're okay. Let's see what we can do. And he's like, ah, I can't go near it. I need a band-aid. I need a band-aid immediately. And it would just kind of go on like that for 20 minutes where we're trying to convince him, let us just take a look, let's make sure it's okay. And the kind of modus operandi is, let's put something on top of it and just pretend it's not there. Let's just not look at it. Let's continue with our lives. And the problem is, is we don't really know how bad it is. We don't know what's really going on. We can't help unless we see what's there. And any good doctor knows he can't diagnose you if you don't come and let him see what's really going on. And so if we want healing, if we want to experience restoration and life, then we have to bring our wounds to the great physician. We have to bring the things in us that is broken. And what Genesis 3 does for us, what the good news of Genesis 3 is, is it allows us to see our deepest wounds as human beings. It allows us to see what's most broken inside of ourselves. So I can't overstate to you how much you and I need to again and again hear this story that might be difficult for us, but is actually a place where God wants to meet us, where God wants to speak with us. Because he is like a father 
who wants us to bring our wounds to him so that he can bandage them up, so that he can heal us. As much as we want to hide, God wants to show up. Paul Tripp wrote this. He says, I don't have to deny my sin. I can run broken and failing as I am and know that there is cleansing for me. There's forgiveness for me. Don't ever resist confession. Don't ever resist conviction. His point is that the work for us to do as as believers, as followers of Christ, is not to hide, not to run, not to deny. Because there's someone who wants to meet us in our brokenness. As we will discover, even here at the beginning of it all, there was a God who wanted to meet Adam and Eve in their brokenness. So we're going to see that through three moments in chapter 3. The genesis of doubt, the genesis of sin, and the genesis of hope. But before we jump all the way into those, I just want to remind us, I want to set the stage for where we're at in this story. Uh, because it's, it's easy once you read Genesis 3 to forget all of Genesis 1 and 2. And then actually we won't understand Genesis 3 if, if we don't remember Genesis 1 and 2. What we are told in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God in great love and joy has created human beings in his image. That we are his image bearers, that we are his representatives in creation. And that he intended and designed us to rule beside him. To spread his compassion and his kindly rule over the face of the earth. To bring order where there is chaos. To recreate pictures, be little pictures of him walking around in creation of who he is. So human beings are of incalculable worth. More than anything else in creation. We are his treasured ones, his children. And that's why what happens in Genesis 3 is so important. Because if we forget that, if we think that we're something other than his treasured possession, the ones whom he loves, whom he has intended great things for, we won't really understand what happens in Genesis 3. So let's jump in with the Genesis of doubt. This is the start of Genesis 3. When I was in college, I uh, got roped on one occasion to go cliff jumping in Waco in Texas. There was uh, Lake Waco, and they had these great cliffs that you could jump straight off of uh, into the lake. And uh, so I drove out there with my friends, and I get to the cliff, and I'm looking over the edge right like this, and my whole body's like, mm, 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 and it just kind of locks up. And so for the next 30 or 40 minutes, I start kind of going through this exercise where I would, okay, okay, I'll run into it, I'll run into it, and then I would go, and, and it was like my whole body would just refuse to do it. That's the power of doubt, right? What I was happening in those moments is somewhere inside me, I doubted that if I jumped off that cliff, it was going to end well for me. And so doubt was so powerful, it was literally shutting my ability to choose what I wanted to do down. Doubt completely overrides you. Doubt, in some ways, can bring a kind of slavery on you. Because if you doubt, if you can't trust, if you can't hope, you don't know where to go. In Genesis 3, we see the power of doubt in the lives of Adam and Eve. Told, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, this serpent, what he does is he plants seeds of doubt. 
in Eve and Adam's heart. And I say Adam because we're going to discover that Eve was not alone when this happened. Both of them are here. And this doubt that's in them, it's going to undo them. Now, understandably, the first question that comes up in most people's minds is, well, who's this servant? Why is he in the garden? What's going on here? We're going to try and answer that a little bit, but I just want you to remember the focus of Genesis 3 is not on that serpent, it's on us. The, the text, the Bible doesn't give us much in, in this passage about this serpent, and there's a reason for that. It's because he's not as important as what happens with Adam and Eve. But it's enough to say this morning that this serpent isn't just some random creature in the garden. This is Satan. Satan is a Hebrew word that means accuser. is this word that captures perfectly who this creature is. If you're unfamiliar with what Christians believe about Satan, Satan uh, was an angel that rebelled against God. He is a created being. He's not equal to God in any way. It's not like he's God's opposite. This is a created being that at some point found so much pride within himself that he rebelled against God, believed that he should be the center of worship. And so God rightfully expelled him from heaven, expelled him out of relationship with him. And he comes now as a liar and a con artist to try and disrupt the work of God and the purposes of God in the lives of human beings out of hatred. Satan comes to Eve in the garden and challenges her understanding of God. Comes and does what he will go on to do for the rest of human history to work a con on Eve. What he asked her is he said, did God actually say? Now, in most times we read the story, we, we kind of think, well, is he, is he getting her to doubt what God has said? But that's not what he's doing. See, the Hebrew word there for actually is a Hebrew word af, which could also be translated really or indeed. So here's what Satan is saying to Eve. Indeed. Did he really say? See, Satan... He isn't denying what God said. He's ridiculing it. He's saying it's ridiculous that God would make such a command of you. Did God really say? Really? He asked you that? He told you that? And you might notice as well, he lies outright. He says, did, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree of the garden? That's not at all what he says. In fact, God said that you can eat of any tree of the garden except one. So he's already working this con. He's trying to plant seeds of doubt in Eve. And what are those seeds of doubt? Is it doubt in God's existence? No, it's doubts in God's goodness. Satan, the serpent, wants Eve to doubt that God is good and that he has good for her. And it's the same for all of us. Now Eve's response is just as important. Because in her effort to respond to this serpent, what Eve does is she misquotes or she misrepresents what God has actually said. God's command to Adam and Eve was very clear. I don't want you to eat of this tree. But what Eve says is, God told us he didn't want us to eat of it and that we shouldn't touch it. Now that's a very subtle change, but what does it, what does it show us about Eve? It shows us that the doubt has already taken root because now she's editing God. She's changing God. She's already doubting who he really is and what he's really said. She's altering her perception of him. And dear friends, you must know for yourself that what God has spoken about himself. You need to know what he's really said. 
You can't rely on other people's opinions. You can't rely on what's kind of out there. You need to look for yourself and understand clearly what has God said. Who is he? What has he done? Otherwise, doubt will twist you out of shape and it will cause you to begin seeing God and even yourself inaccurately. In fact, we see in Jesus' lifetime, Jesus, just like Adam and Eve, was tempted. He was tempted to doubt God's goodness. Satan came to him in Matthew 4, we read this. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Essentially saying, if God really cared about you, he wouldn't have you out here in a desert without food. And what Jesus says is, he quotes the scripture, he quotes the Old Testament back. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. His point is that a genuine commitment to God and his word in particular will protect you when doubt comes. It will protect you against the doubt that God is good, not good. Now, did you know that only between about 32 to 36% to of people who would identify as Bible-believing Christians or evangelical Christians, only 32 to 36% say that they read their Bible regularly. And almost one in five of all churchgoers say that they've actually never read the Bible in any way their entire life. One in five, that's 20% of all people who would say they're Christian have never read the Bible. Biblical literacy in, in our culture is at an all-time high. There's lots of opinions about what God has said, very few knowledge of what he's actually said. And I remember having a lot of confidence as a kid when I was growing up. My mom would take me to church. I'd have a lot of confidence in the stories that were in the Bible. If you asked me what kind of stories were in the Bible, I would maybe tell you a few. But I was shocked as I got older how little I actually knew about what was in those pages. I had no idea what these stories were about. No idea what God had actually said. No idea about what God actually intended. And so it was easy for me to doubt and be twisted out of shape about God. And what I think God desires for us is to have confidence. To have confidence that he's good. So Eve, she kind of stumbles and she uh, says this to Satan, and Satan responds with his worst lie. What he says to Eve is, God's withholding from you, Eve. There's something very good, and he's not letting you have it. And if you eat from this tree, you'll be like him. You won't need him anymore. And right there is when everything changes. When he convinces Eve, she doesn't need God. Do you ever doubt that God's commands are good for you? Do you ever hear this idea inside of yourself that if I obey God, if I really commit to this, I'm going to miss out? That is the lies of the accuser. I hope you understand this morning. I hope you hear this from me. There is no one more dedicated towards your joy, no one more committed to your life than God. Not even you. God's love for you his desire for you is beyond all of your imagining. And in fact, the Bible says it's beyond whatever we could ask or hope. It is a lie that to follow him and to obey him is to miss out. In fact, the opposite is true. To miss God is to miss everything. 
But Satan knows if he can destroy humanity's confidence in the love of God, then you've got room for the genesis of sin. Genesis of sin is where we see this horrible trade happen. Verses six through seven. Now, I, I did something risky this week. I decided that to, to illustrate this point, I was gonna talk about sports. It's dangerous for me because I don't know anything about sports. So humor me. I decided I would look into the worst trades in sports history. The worst trades in sports history. And this is where I came across. Two that struck me in particular. One that's kind of local to us in Chicago. In 1989, the Seattle Sonics, who I didn't even know were a team. Apparently, they've gone now. That shows you how much I know about sports. But the, in 1989, the Seattle Sonics in the NBA draft traded Scottie Pippen, who was the fifth pick in the draft, to the Chicago Bulls. They gave him up so that they could get Olden Polonese, who was a second-round pick. Now, what happened after that, as those of us that follow Chicago basketball know, Scottie Pippen became one of the greatest basketball players of all time. He was the perfect complement to Michael Jordan. They ended up changing NBA history, won six titles together. But the Seattle Sonics had just given him up. Didn't realize what they really had there. Another one that I came across is uh, the Boston Red Sox once traded Babe Ruth for $100,000. You don't even need to know about baseball to know how foolish that is. They gave him up, didn't realize what they really had. And many people would say this is the worst deal in the history of all sports. Because the Red Sox owner, Harry Frazee, he would go on to experience a, a long string of losses for the Boston Red Sox. And meanwhile, Babe Ruth would dominate the World Series for the next 20 years. The Yankees would be there all the time. And this article finished by saying, how could anything be worse than that trade? We know there's a worse trade. In fact, it's the worst trade in all of human history. And it's the trade that was made at the tree of the, God, of the, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what happens in Genesis 3, verses 6 to 7. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, once doubt has taken root in their hearts, it grows and it festers and Adam and Eve decide to make a choice. They decide to engage in the worst trade in the history of the universe. And what's the trade? What happens at that tree? They trade God for themselves. They trade God for themselves. Everything that has ever gone wrong in human history can be connected to the trade that was made that day. Everything. Every drop of suffering, every painful moment has threads back to the choice that we all share in, which is to trade God for ourselves. This is the great wound that's in us that we have to look at. Told in Romans 1, 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The heart of that passage is not shame. It's to point out, do we understand what it is that we have given up? 
And that's the best definition of sin, by the way, that you could ever have. Sin is not bad things that God deems immoral. Sin is the exchanging of God himself for lesser things. Sin is choosing to find your satisfaction in something lesser than God himself. Because you are created in his image. You were not created for lesser things. Last week, Rebecca McLaughlin, who I am now the biggest fan of ever, uh, she shared something really poignant with our staff. That as soon as she said it, I said, I'm writing that down for next week. She talked about this moment in John 11, in John's gospel. You might be familiar with the story where Jesus is coming to see Mary and Martha because their brother Lazarus has died. He comes in. And Martha runs up to him. She says, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus' answer to her is to say, I am the resurrection and the life. He's not saying, Martha, I am the means to life, so just trust me. He's saying, I am life. That's why your brother's about to be raised in a moment. That's why God has sent me to set everything right, because I am life itself. And if that's true, if Jesus is telling us the truth that he is life, then friends, it is a foolish choice to give him up for anything. And what Rebecca McLaughlin said is that it's foolish to give him up, in her case, for romantic or sexual fulfillment. It's foolish to give him up for satisfaction in your career. It's foolish to give him up so that you can feel like you have a better reputation or a more significant legacy. It is foolish to give him up for money, for power. It is foolish to trade life itself for anything less. And we're fools not only because of what we've given up, but because of what we've brought upon ourselves. C.S. Lewis once said that if we find within ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, logically it follows that we were made for something else. There's a hole in us that only can be filled with God. But what the Bible tells us is that because of that trade, we are now desperately trying to fill an infinite hole with finite things. James says, what causes quarrels and fights amongst you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have because you've traded God, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain because you've traded God, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's just tragic. And you know what the most tragic part of this story is for me personally? It's Adam. Adam's just silence in this moment. Did you notice when we read through that, where Adam was this whole time? If you read that carefully, we're told that Eve took the fruit and she gave some to her husband who was where? With her. He just watched it happen. She takes it and gives it to her husband who was with her. He was watching it all. At any point, he could have stepped in and and protected his wife, defended his wife, told her what was true, encouraged her, give her hope, but instead he just watched it. Silence. Passively takes and eats it. He abdicates his God-given responsibility to love and protect his wife. 
and it was to the ruin of his wife, his own soul, and every human being that has ever lived afterwards. Adam was silent. And the silence of men in this world is deafening. Men who have not chosen to lead their families, love their wives, serve their children or their neighbors. Men who have abdicated their responsibility to sacrifice and to serve and to stand in the gap and be representations of God's love and compassion and faithfulness. We sit under the consequence of the silence of Adam. And often we sit under the consequences of men who continue to be silent when God tells them to speak. Final thing to mention here is the immediate and devastating results of this trade. Because what happens immediately after taking that fruit, they are filled with shame, such that they hide from each other. They realize they're naked and they sow fig leaves together and they cover themselves. What a horrible change from the picture that we had just a chapter ago where they were naked and unashamed. They could be fully themselves with one another. They could share themselves with one another and have no shame. And now, in a moment, they've lost all of that. They have to hide from one another. They have to cover up. And I think that our hearts should weep over that tragedy. That sin has not just robbed us of God, it's robbed us of relationship with each other, authentic and genuine relationship with each other. That we have to hide not just from him, but from each other. That's not what God wanted for us. God does not want us to hide from one another, to withdraw from one another, to wrestle with shame and suffering, but it's not his heart. If you have believed as Adam and Eve did that your failures must be hidden, then you have missed what God wants to say to you. You have missed, in fact, what is most beautiful about God that is here even in this story. Because even as humanity moves away from God, God moves towards them. That's where we see the genesis of hope. Starting in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to them. Called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave me, never a good decision to blame your wife. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So Adam and Eve, they flee, they hide. It's funny that we should call this the, the tree of the knowledge and good and evil because one of the consequences is if they lost the knowledge to actually know God, they think they can hide from him. They run and they, they shelter because they're afraid. But where is God? How does he reveal himself to Adam and Eve? He walks in the garden towards them. And this is the God of the heavens. He doesn't need to walk in a garden. He's omnipresent. He's powerful. So why, why would we be told that he does that? Because he wants to be close to them. He knows exactly what's happened. He goes in to ask them these questions. He says, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree? And what is this that you've done? Is God asking any of those questions because he doesn't know the answers and he needs to get some information? No. Why is God asking those questions? Because he wants them to come to him. Because he wants them to see. Hope is a God who pursues you when you hide and asks you questions when you are silent. That's what hope is. Hope is a God who says, where are you? I know where you are, but do you? Do you know where you are? Do you see how you're running from me? Hope is a God who asks, who told you that you were naked? Where's the shame coming from, Adam? I've never once told you that you should be ashamed of yourself. Where's that coming from? Hope is a God who says, have you eaten? Have you disobeyed? Who wants them to confess their wrongdoing, not to shame them, but so that he can work in them. Have you crossed the line, Adam? Then hope is a God that says, what's this that you have done? Are you ready to accept responsibility? Do you want me to come in? Each of these questions are intended to lead them to look at themselves, not to shame, again, as I said. God knows that in this moment, they're not just hiding from him, they're hiding from themselves. They cannot bear to look at themselves. And that breaks God's heart. He sees the pain and the destruction of sin, and he wants to come into it. Maybe you felt like that. Maybe you felt like you cannot bear to look at yourself. I felt like that. And what God has repeatedly strived to do in my life is to remind me that he is a God that draws near at my worst moments. Who doesn't ask questions to harm me, but so that he can do his work. God, you see, is seeking to get a confession from them. He wants them to open up their wound, but they never answer. All they do is blame shift. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. No one really acknowledges what's gone wrong, what's gone wrong, what they've really done, what's happened. And if you are longing for more of God, you must start by looking at yourself and understanding your true need. You have to open up the wound and look at it. You can't blame shift. You can't say, well, this is, this is because this happened to me. Well, this is, this is just because God's never said this to me. He's never given me this. You can't move the shift. You can't move the blame. You've got to look honestly and openly and say, God, there is something within me that I have broken and I need you to put it right. Jesus said himself, he came to seek and save that which was lost. God is pursuing you in Christ. He's coming after you even as you walk away from him. So let me ask you this morning, where are you? Where are you? Are you hiding? Is there part of yourself that you are desperately trying to keep away from God? Do you trust him? Do you trust that your heavenly father loves you and moves towards you only for your good? Truth is that we hide because we don't think that anything can be done. 
There's a really interesting piece by Beatrice Webb, who was a, a British socialite and, uh, and welfare advocate. She wrote in her diary in 19, 1890, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. And now 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us and how little they seem to change, like greed for wealth and power, and how mere social machinery will never change that. We must ask better things from human nature, but will we get a response? No amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail. The struggle of humanity is we see this wound in ourselves, and we've tried desperately through hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of different ways to, to curb it, to control it, to fulfill it, and we can't. Here we are, how many thousands of years later, Hundreds of thousands, millions of years later. I, I don't even know how long it's been and we're still in the same place because there is only one thing who can set this right. The God who moves towards us. The God who we're told in 2 Timothy who if we are faithless remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. God didn't stop moving towards us on that day. In fact, he would come and dwell with us in the person of his son, Jesus, who is himself the greatest movement of God towards human beings ever. And Jesus would go through an exchange of his own. Jesus would exchange his own life for the opportunity to bring us back to him. And that's an exchange that we're gonna celebrate this morning by taking communion together. If you didn't receive one of these cups when you came in, I would love for you to just raise your hand now and Aloysius will bring them out to you. But what we are about to celebrate is a better exchange than the one that we read about in Genesis 3. See, communion is a symbol for us, not just of Christ's body and his blood and the event of Golgotha and, and Easter. Communion is a symbol of his reversal of everything that went wrong in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, 6, this is what we read. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. She took, she gave, she ate. Now listen to Matthew's account of the Last Supper where Jesus sat with his disciples. As they were eating, this is Matthew 26, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he gave it to the disciples and said, eat. Take, eat, this is my body. And in the same way, he took a cup, he gave it to them, he said, drink this. Just as Eve took, gave, and ate, Jesus took, gave, and invited us to eat. At the tree in the garden, what happened is we exchanged God for ourselves. And in communion, we are exchanging ourselves for Christ. At the tree in the garden, it was about putting ourselves where God deserved to be. And the Last Supper celebrates the fact that Christ put himself where we deserve to be. Do you see the beauty of what's happening? Do you see the, the hope of the God that moves towards us? 
a heart that is full not of anger or disappointment, but of love and compassion and a desire to save and to heal. So as we take these elements this morning, I want you to hold on to hope. The hope that though you may hide, God's still seeking you. The hope that though you are greatly wounded, God desires to bind you up, to heal you. And the hope that though you have sinned, it is God's great delight to redeem you through his son. I want to invite John Anderson to come up now as we come to take the elements. He's going to play for us while we do this. If you're a guest, I just want to remind you, when we do this, this is not Chapel Street's table. It's not something that's exclusive to us. This is the Lord's table that he has invited anyone who would trust in him to come to. So you are welcome to take this with us, even if you're a guest. This is just our way of reminding ourselves of setting our heart on the one who has given himself up for us, who has exchanged his life for ours. What I want you to do is to peel that bottom of the cup inside your feet, uh, find a small piece of bread. This is a reminder that on his last night, Jesus sat with his disciples, took bread, broke it, gave it to them, and invited them to eat with him. Let's eat in remembrance of him. In the same way, after he'd done that, he took a cup. He passed it around. He gave it to them. And he invited them to drink so that they would know that his blood is part of a new covenant given for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take and drink this in remembrance of him. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that though at that tree, every one of us would have made the same decision to exchange you for ourselves, you are the God who stepped into our world and exchanged yourself for us. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us, Lord, that the God of heaven would give himself for us, that you would take our place. We praise you, we sing to you, We put our hope in you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.